my friends, the great experiment. The greatest trick, trick, trick. Hidden trick, trick. Would you look at that? The greatest trick, trick. Did you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of star trick. Welcome to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast for the makers of the Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Wow, winding down into the end of the year. We got a very exciting episode today, Adam. Don't normally do this, but we have a guest today. Yeah, it's the time of year where you invite friends and family over for some holiday cheer. Mm-hmm. That's what happened today. <laughs> Yeah, we invite friends and family over to uh, feel a little bit embarrassed about our scotch collection because you know that they have a better scotch collection at home. Sure. I mean, I, don't, I I wouldn't call what I have a collection. I have that one bottle that Adam Ragusea sent me when my son was born and another bottle that I got from a social media influencer scheme that somehow <laughs> I got roped into. <laughs> I was and remain not a Scotchman, yeah. but uh, I'm happy for everyone who is. I'm, I am too. Um, this is a very f- a fun interview. I mean, we get to uh, learn a little bit more about the process of making Prodigy, uh, a little bit about uh, what's going on with season two, a little bit about uh, you know some, some of the pressing issues that we have raised about Prodigy and our coverage of it on this show. That's right. And Aaron Walkie. The writer and co-executive producer of Star Trek Prodigy. Pretty powerful person, if you ask me. Yeah. In, like, the Star Trek ecosystem. I mean, there aren't that many of his job title in Star Trek. That's true. I mean, I feel like there are more executive producers now than there used to be. Like, when you watch, like, the credits roll on Disco. Oh, sure. <laughs> it seems like there's more executive producers than, like, lead cast members. It would be easier for us to be executive producers on a new Star Trek show than to be blown out of a (laughs) hull breach on any of the shows. I firmly believe that. I think that's probably true. Um, But Aaron has become uh, a friend of the show. He is a friend of DeSoto. He he has told us he listens. And uh, we're sure lucky to have him on the episode today. Should we just get right into it, Adam? Oh, yeah. Here's our very special hang with friend of the podcast, Aaron Waltke. You know the greatest danger facing us is an irrational fear. We don't know. Shoot, Call my mark, go fast. Well, Aaron Waltke, welcome <laughs> to Greatest Trek. Yes, thank you for inviting me into your secret domain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I mean, we sometimes refer to this as the garage, but that's a bit of a misleading way of talking about it uh the cargo bay for lack of a better term uh (laughs) yeah i I think cargo bay i kind of like actually you've probably been in a lot of places with a lot of star trek memorabilia on the walls like ben's got including my own how does this compare with the other spots that you've been I would say there's a lot more of a homey decor in here, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has a much more personalized touch, presumably from people gifting you things, unless sure. you just made into each one of these individually, just no. because you've like, we really need a Pee Wee Herman on the wall, so we'll <laughs> handcraft that. There is, I think, only one piece of a, a real Star Trek like screen use stuff in here, and it's the uh, 
weapons platform from the Nebula class starship. Oh snap! Uh, somebody sent to us. Someone just sent that to you. Yeah, and it's got like a certificate of authenticity and everything. They're holding the rest of the Nebula class as a hostage. Though. <laughs> That's yeah. the pinky toe with uh, right. With polish that they sent. And we will not negotiate, you know. <laughs> I will not abide another toe. I do wonder if you could assemble the rest of that just piecemeal from other private collectors <laughs> and That'd eventually cool. just have a floating starship in here. It really suggests the size of the model that it belongs to, though. That's that true, that thing's yeah. enormous. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, you know, I love watching those behind-the-scenes documentaries and just seeing... You know, they had the whole documentary on Lucasfilm where they had the models and sort of invented the concept of moving the camera along the model yeah. instead of, you know, right. having the camera be on strings like the Star Trek, uh, at least the original TOS model, which was just found, by the way, in somebody's. Yeah. Did you hear that? I did. Yeah, that's so wild. It was, I, I believe it or not, I happened to be on eBay that day. And the algorithm, <laughs> the algorithm literally like pushed it to me and said, Do you want this? And my brain just didn't register it beyond, I was like, Ah, oh, that's, that looks pretty good. That almost looks like the real enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that actually, Leads me to, I wanted to hear the story of how you came to acquire John Hull's gun from Star Trek V. <laughs> yes. So for the uninitiated, I don't know how much you've talked about it on the podcast yet. We haven't really yet. So, <laughs> so uh, this this is uh, a, a fun surprise. We got, to, we got to hold the real gun from Star Trek V uh, when you came to our L.A. show of the Share Your Embarrassment Tour. Yes. They let you in with this thing. Well, <laughs> perhaps to their discredit, <laughs> because the story, you were like, oh, yeah, Brit, you know, we're, we're come, doing our L.A. tour. You saw that I had gotten the the prop gun from Star Trek V, one of the, the sort of handcrafted zip guns that had been made for Nimbus Three. Uh, rebel fighters, I guess. And you invited me out to, you, and the, Adam was like, yeah, bring the gun, <laughs> which is a, never a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you never want that in a text or in writing anywhere, really. Right, right. right yeah. Well, that's why Ad, you, what you sent him was bring the, and then it was gun emoji. Sure. And I was like, yeah. water pistol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I should have just used emojis of a bunch of pipe fittings because <laughs> right. that's what this thing looks like. Yeah. It's a hundred percent. When you're holding it, it is a hundred percent made out of trash. Yeah. Like yeah. You, just galvanized you could, <laughs> pipe and like loose wire. and Which totally works for the kind of Mad Max adjacent kind of vibe that obviously Nimbus 3 was going for. Mm -hmm. But you can almost smell the flop sweat of the prop master who was yeah. like, Shatner wants us to make how many guns <laughs> for this for these three scenes? Um, but it, it, it adds a certain handcrafted quality to it, like where you're holding it, it does feel like it should be able to shoot teeth or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, you, you invited me to your show and then you're like, yeah, we'll have it on stage or whatever. And which sounded like a great plan until I actually got there. And then I was just like, now I'm just wandering around a dark graveyard with a handmade gun. <laughs> and then the, I, I was kind of like awkwardly texting, just trying to get a hold of you guys. And a security officer came up and was just sort of like, uh, what are you doing here? And I was and like, you were like, I'm just texting the hosts of the show while I'm wearing this weapon. Yeah. I was like, no, no, they want me to be here. They, they asked me to be here. <laughs> I need to give them this. They, they asked for it. They, they tell me all the time. <laughs> I heard it on the podcast. <laughs> they sent me the messages. <laughs> so thankfully, 
thankfully you came and found me and brought me up to the green room or whatever. And, and it, then you had it on stage on the show. But, it, but then uh, as we were hanging out, one of your producers, I think, ran up and was just like, hey, apparently there's a guy in the parking lot with a homemade gun that said he's here for you. Is that okay? Should we get rid of him? They were like, we know that guy. He's fine. They were like, we don't know where he went. We're having drinks with him right now. That's our policy. <laughs> In the moment, I had no idea how to even describe it. I, I think I muttered something like, "No, no, this is from the movie." Yeah, and he was, like, and the guy clearly had no he, clue. He didn't what. know what the show was. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for us not telling anyone at the venue about our plan for that. That was That's uh, on us. really smart by us. <laughs> yeah. Also, smart by us was not making sure that the venue got the correct bottle of scotch because uh, <laughs> we'd put a bottle of scotch for you on our backstage writer and then just got a random different bottle of scotch and uh you know the man with the gun is not going to just put up with any scotch i don't think <laughs> true i need a bowmore 15 <laughs> you have way more writer confidence than i do a writer that has been fucked out for so many shows <laughs> like 50 we have a 50 percent hit rate on the writer i would okay. say is I, it usually just like something for, like a costco veggie platter and that's it i mean that's that's all all we ask for most of the time right. but I think we put Patron or similar or mm -hmm. something like that for the tequila. Just like make sure it's not rot gut. Like sure. I know that Patron is not like fancy tequila that fancy people like. But it's not ever clear. But many places don't have fancy tequila. And at least it's like a floor that right. people recognize. Yeah. Right? Like it comes in a box. Like mm -hmm. there's a standard there, I sure. guess. And so I was like, well, if I'm asking for a specific scotch, I might as well ask for a specific tequila. And they just didn't get either of them. They got two different things. Right. <laughs> I thought they were both good. They were, were they, good. They, were, they were perfectly drinkable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm <trying> Devastating. <laughs> I would cook with both of these. <laughs> but you did ask how I acquired it, which was mm -hmm. uh, the, I believe it was Greg Jine, he was a prop master in the 80s and 90s, and he just had this big auction of his estate, which it, among his stuff was some insane stuff. Like he owned a, an X-Wing from the original, like a New Hope wow. that sold for $4.1 million. Dang. Um, and he had like original Euro prop phasers from TOS. He had Shatner's wig from TOS. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. He like, it was, it was a treasure trove. And it was an online auction, which I had never participated in before, but I was like, I already know that I shouldn't even try for like Uhura's earpiece that's going to go for 50 grand, which it, I think it did. What yeah. did the wig go for? Uh, I think it went for like 13,000, but there was two glorious weeks where I was the lead bidder in the pre-opening and I was like, <laughs> I might actually get this. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> but then 12K was a bit above my price range for a hair piece from 1967. And you're using the company card for this anyway, right? So you want to fly research. under the radar? Yeah, it was yeah. research. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I tax write off. So basically <laughs> what I did was I just reverse searched or I price sorted of like under a thousand. And yeah. that's the move. And of all of the items that were there, the Mad Maxi, like Nimbus three guns were there. I was like, oh, that, you know, I, I could, I don't know how many people would do that. Do you think that's also a quality of the movie that the prop came from? Like, do you think all <laughs> Star Trek five props are probably of a lower cost I, th I think they, than any others? I think like stuff from like Wrath of Khan or like the guy had the original Botany Bay from Space Seed. Just like that sold for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I think, it, yeah, I think there it's a more of a specialized collector who wants Star Trek five memorabilia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I, I was like, this is perfect. I love Mad Max. I love Star Trek. Perfect intersection of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Totally. 
Did you find yourself bidding against Garrett Wong on a lot of these <laughs> items? There were a few occasions where like I thought I could get it and then immediately found myself in a weird bid fight. And I was like, all right, you can have it, dude. <laughs> yeah. But then with this one, I he think doesn't there, lose. No. <laughs> there was one other person where uh, who I think they put one bid on this gun. And then by that time, it was like, you know, the guy had like tens of thousands of items that were being auctioned. And I could tell that the auctioneer was getting tired <laughs> and they had clearly already gotten rid of the big ticket items. Like it's the Galileo seven, you know? Right. <laughs> and so people had already spent their hundreds of thousands on that stuff. And then when it came to this, I could tell like when he got to the guns from Nimbus three, he was like, all right, I'm going to go quick. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, a hierarchy in quality to this lot of guns and how many were there? I think there was three, three different items that were sold uh -huh. and i would i would argue this was probably the 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 second best item there was a sniper rifle that was slightly better that went for like two or oh, three cool. times that but of the nimbus three lot yeah i think i got the the prize what were some other star trek five props that could that caught your eye i mean a lot of them were just like it was like paneling, you know, very yeah. specific stuff that clearly, you know, he had just found in like the, the, a garage somewhere sure. like, of a prop room. And then it wound up becoming this, you know, cherished relic that he was able to uh, feed his uh, his grandkids with. Yeah, I hope he has a great vacation. It's super well, cool. It, it, was his, it was his estate, so. Oh, yeah. well, I mean. Uh, his I'll, grandkids. I'll say it again. Uh, I hope he's having a great vacation. Sure. <laughs> Wherever yeah. he is. The greatest trend is yet to come. Well, we'd be remiss in having you in here uh, and not talking to you about Star Trek Prodigy, which is uh, season one is on Netflix as of the release of this. Yes. And we're waiting for season two. Yes. Season two is coming in 2024. So stay tuned for more announcements on that. But uh, I think everybody on the Star Trek Prodigy team is over the moon and extremely grateful to the Star Trek fandom for both the coverage from shows like from you guys and and also just the 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 rallying cry of like you know we want to see this show continue we want a, a place for this to live and you know it, unfortunately it's not on Paramount Plus anymore but Netflix has a tremendous global audience yeah. uh you know hundreds of millions of people, many of whom I, I'm guessing have not seen of the show yet, even for the first time. So the opportunity to have that kind of new reach to new viewers, young and old, is a tremendous opportunity. So I encourage y'all who are listening to this right now, even if you think, oh, it's it's just for kids or it's something that uh, you know, you're not sure about because it's animated, give it a shot. Because Give it a I, shot. I've heard from so many people who have told me that they initially weren't sure if it was for them, and then they watch a few episodes, and then by the end of the the first season, they are completely hooked, and it's Star Trek through and through. It uh, really changes tone so much over the course. Like that first season is like. I was like worried at the beginning because <laughs> the tone is so not Star Trek at the beginning. And it becomes more and more just this big hug of everything I love about Star Trek. And I wonder how much like that was like part of the plan originally, yeah. or is that something that came out in breaking the like, I mean, cause it's like a 22 episode season. Uh, 20 episode season, 22 minute episodes. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and it, yeah, it was very much by design. And part of the reason that the show exists at all was because there, I think people are so used to Star Trek being 
a series that is built on pure competence of just seasoned veterans on a starship, you know, wearing space pajamas, you know, direct giving orders. And you have to kind of just as an audience, you either know this stuff because you've watched 100 episodes already and have absorbed it by osmosis or you know, you just ha- are expected to catch up and kind of pick it up as you go of like, what, what is Starfleet? What is the, What are they expected to do? What can't they do? What's the first duty? What's the prime directive? Is that right. the same thing or not? <laughs> and the prime directive, what does it actually mean? Which <laughs> I was shocked to learn our show is the first one in all of Star Trek to actually define in actual text what the prime directive is. Whoa. It was not until our show that that had been codified. Before that, it had always just been sort of alluded to or paraphrased. Right. Which is probably because they didn't uh, want to be beholden to it for every episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now they're stuck with it. Right. Getting the kids off on the right foot. Right. So part of the reason the show exists is we wanted to show that if you were coming into it, you didn't need to know anything about Star Trek. And then we would kind of guide you episode by episode, character arc by character arc about what Starfleet and the Federation represents through the lens of these kids who are effectively faking it till they make it mm-hmm. only to come to embrace the very ideals they were pretending to have and realize that the Federation and Starfleet is in fact their salvation. That sounds like a pitch to me. Was that more or less what it was? Yes. That was it from the beginning. I'd buy that show. <laughs> Sold in the room. Right. Uh, but you're you're right in that I think- I'm going to write a number down on a post-it <laughs> and slide it across the table to you. <laughs> this just says Bowmore 15. <laughs> um, you're right in that as we were releasing it episode by episode, I think there were a lot of Star Trek fans that initially watched it and were like, I didn't see any Starfleet. You know, there's no seasoned captain. All it is is just the ship. It could be any show. And then- It's not until about the midpoint of the first 10 episodes where they are forced to come together as a crew and realize that, you know, Starfleet is the story of many, not just the story of one. Mm -hmm. Sorry, is this too serious of an an interview answer? (laughs) I mean, the way you describe it makes it seem as though it's a mystery. And I don't watch a lot of children's programming, Mm -hmm. but like, is that the pitch for a lot of children's shows? Like, start with the mystery that the kids are trying to solve and- I think there's there are, it's a one of many stories that mm-hmm. that, that shapes that a, a story could I tell. just think of kids as monoculture so <laughs> well there's there's man versus man there's man versus nature there's kids solve mystery right. yes. you know yeah. the three kinds of stories that you can right. tell of of the barbara school sure <laughs> um but yeah like but for instance like avatar the last airbender is another great example an earlier example of of serialized storytelling where you had an, each episode like star trek is kind of a story of the week or a mis- mystery or a sci-fi concept of the week but it starts if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen Avatar: The Last Airbender, but the this first is the one where Sully fights the Sky People and uh, <laughs> saves There's, the unobtainium. There are, there are not blue people, but there are waterbenders that <laughs> like the color blue. This is the metal guy from Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> more benders around as far as i'm concerned that's good news well, yeah we've both seen these yeah. okay good we're deeply familiar <laughs> right but it's a great example of where the pilot is they they find a child frozen in a sphere in the middle of the arctic and they're like where did you come from and then it turns out that he is an airbender that 
the, all the airbenders had gone extinct a hundred years ago, and but he had somehow survived. Mm-hmm. And they slowly kind of uncover as his memories return what happened to him. What is an airbender like somebody that can like fire a fart in a very specific direction? I mean, more or less, yes, okay. <laughs> but with their hands. Okay, cool. They're very good at wafting. <laughs> Do you have to consume a lot of children's programming to construct good stories? with them as your audience or are you just trying to create a great story and then you take out the adult elements until you're (laughs) left with like a good story for kids well i mean the way i tend to write and the way that a lot of the other people that worked on the show tend to write for specifically this sort of like young adults kind of four quadrant what they call co-viewing experience which you know i was a child of the 80s and 90 early 90s and you know there was this aesthetic then where Every movie was just a banger and everybody could get something out of it. And these sort of Amblin movies where Mm -hmm. there's something where the kid gets to see the cool dinosaurs, but then the the adult uh, in the room sees this journey of Grant as he kind of comes to terms with his own mortality and letting other people in. Adventure, I think. Letting Ian Malcolm hit on Ellie Sattler, you know, just being okay with that. Right. And understanding the, the, the true capabilities of a shaving cream can. Mm. Um, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, that kind of four-quadrant storytelling, I think, is not beholden to any single age group. So it's not – I always think it's not really necessarily a, a matter of taking out adult stuff or prevent – like putting – bumpers on it it's Mm -hmm. it it, sometimes it's sort of like let's start with what's the story the cool story you want to tell and then okay well if one of these characters is 15 how do we make it relatable to a 15 year old or or younger people that are aspiring to be like the cool 15 year old you know and so there's there's going to be a certain rebelliousness in there and and you know teenagers have stupid senses of humor unlike right. us adults mm-hmm. <laughs> no we're very refined senses of humor <laughs> yes. on this show specifically right and then you know it, we always will pitch the what we call the cadillac version which is just mm-hmm. like let's just this is the best version of it and if for some reason we're like oh is that maybe kids might not understand that we find some way to add an element to it that is mm-hmm. relatable or fun or keeps it interesting for for younger viewers as well I think uh, Ben's observation about like the darkness of how this series started made me wonder like how much of that was stuff that you talked about early on like how how dark to make it how much darkness could a kid take before they got to understand the light that you were also offering down the road Yeah you know what I'll say is that that darkness that you're referring to of of what the life is like outside the Federation was actually present in all the other Star Treks. It's just you don't really focus on it. You don't see the the baby cat slaves, right? In other series, <laughs> like you do, but you one. do sometimes. Yeah. Like, it, it, like mean, sometimes it, you find out that some people carry their genitals on their knees. It's true, you know? as, as seen in Star Trek Six. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did you think about having one of those guys in the mine? <laughs> Prodigy. I mean, I, I will. The Cadillac version. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I, I, we always like if something makes us laugh or intrigues us. If we're like, how can we take this thing that is either forgotten or sometimes openly reviled and and refashion it into something that is clever or interesting? Yeah. That like I, I can't stay away from that stuff. It's I have been very fascinated by the sort of uh, outrageous Okana uh, renaissance that's happening. Totally. The original episode, I think most people 
it's a novelty at best. <laughs> it's not <laughs> not necessarily uh, the on the list of greatest episodes of Star Trek of all time. And and yet that character I think kind of stuck in people's craw because he was sort of like a Costco Han Solo. Yeah. And people were like, "What's going on with him? What's going on with that other side of the you know of sort of merchants that are, operate outside the Federation and are sort of cavalier rogues or sm- smugglers or whatever?" And there's you know there's there's all these little things that are hinted at like you know even in the Star Trek movies where it's where you see McCoy go to a bar and deal with like. Mm, Genesis <laughs> and money I got, you know, yeah. like he's, he's straight up backroom dealing, <laughs> you know, yeah. to get on a, a, a ship into like illegal territory. Genesis allowed is not his planet forbidden. But so much of Star Trek is not focused on that. It's focused on the, the parts of Starfleet where they figured their stuff out. You know, even in Voyager that, you know, there's been numerous occasions where you, every alien race they come across are like, slavers or space Nazis or all kinds of really dramatic stuff. It was like, wow, <laughs> I guess life outside the Federation isn't so great. Right. And, and we kind of came at it from, you know, and I apologize if this is going too meta commentary or deep, but when we we're talking about like, what does the Federation provide? We, we were like, let's look at like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It provides comfort, safety, emotional support. So what would happen if you had somebody that had none of that and you kind of imbued them with these elements that the Federation provides? Could like like unmolded clay, could they be shaped into something resembling a competent and honorable duty-bound Starfleet officer? Right. And that, that's what intrigued us, of seeing that journey the, yeah. of the people like before they enter Starfleet Academy and then slowly becoming, you know, your Captain Kirks and your Picards and your Janeways. Your mention of Okona made me think of a conversation we had at Star Trek Las Vegas when you sort of described a gathering of the five families of all of the new Star Trek series getting together and chopping up which trivial characters you'd be (laughs) able to use in your series. Could you talk a little bit about like how all of the series get on the same page canonically and, and with respect to all of these characters? Yeah, I mean, it's it is interesting to be part of this sort of era of Star Trek, where there are at at one point there was what four or five shows that were being made at the same time. Yeah, and we kind of wound up just getting kind of categorized into subcategories just based on where they were in the timeline, you know, because obviously we're not as likely to cross over Strange New Worlds, but Lower Decks is on our heels, and Picard, you know, is is in the the foreground. Right. And so we definitely had to like get our ducks in a row, understand thoroughly what Picard was hinting at, especially in like the 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 setup for season 1, right? Because Picard's season 1 was such that it was they kind of hinted that all this stuff happened in the 2380s and 90s, but you, I think all told, you see maybe like four minutes that are set in that time period, and the right. rest is just sort of alluded to or commented about. Yeah, we did a for this show. We covered like a prequel novel uh, about Star Trek Picard that dealt with the like yeah. space lift of like rescuing everyone from the Romulan Star Empire. 
Right. And it's so wild to me to think about that and think about how little of it was actually in the show. It was just kind of like a thing that had happened and like got mentioned a couple of times. Yeah. But it's like a major historical event in the timeline. Right. And but sometimes that's cool to just you know, it makes the world feel lived in. And I think Star Trek. Absolutely. Star Trek is it, at its best does that very well, where yeah. they just sort of casually refer to, you know, the great Klingon Tribble War mm-hmm. and everybody accepts it. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody says, hey, what did you just say? <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, it was pretty easy, to, I think, once we all kind of were able to pitch out what our stories were. And then it wasn't a matter of, like, necessarily wrestling over characters, but but rather where there was an overlap it was exciting to us of like, oh, this is a chance just the same way that the Berman era had those three shows going simultaneously. And, and you know, you'd have those little moments where they kind of touch tails, like when Voyager first makes con- contact with the Alpha Quadrant and they're like, what's the Dominion War? Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. um, uh, spoiler alert. Oh, sorry. If you haven't seen Voyager, <laughs> uh, watch those seven seasons and get back to this episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it's. I think, if anything, it was very exciting. And whenever Picard threw something out that you know they didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to deal with, but it was an interesting idea that corresponded with ours directly. I, you know, there are numerous occasions where the Hagemans and myself would reach out to Terry and his team, and we and we would just have a conversation like, okay, if this happened in our in our timeline, here's how it would play out in your timeline, and like that's perfect. And in some some occasions, we would rewrite lines so that that appeared on Picard so that they lined up with our show. And so, you know, it was this really fun collaborative storytelling that, you know, Star Trek, I think, has always been – they were the Marvel Universe before the Marvel Universe was the Marvel Universe. <laughs> like, everybody goes to Deep Space Nine, bro. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> so my understanding is that season two was, was written and mostly – a lot of it was done or all of it was done before this – cancellation slash Netflix deal happened. So so does season two have stuff that like ties into in-universe stuff in other shows also? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, wow. uh, you know, we had written all of season two, I think at the beginning of 2022. And that was while Picard season three was still, I think still just being speculated on. And then as we got further, because the animation pipeline is so long, as things got closer, you know, they they would say, "Hey, we're doing this design for this this particular facility," or it's like, "Okay, we'll use that and put it here to make sure that it it corresponds." And oh, that's so interesting. Do do like digital assets like work in the different like visual styles? Like, do you do you just like drop a cell shading (laughs) filter on something that you get from them, or vice versa? I mean, it helps that our show. You know, obviously it has some exaggerated proportions uh, so that you don't totally dwell in the uncanny valley. Rock talks mouth, for example. <laughs> I, I'm going to need five minutes on rock talks mouth here's at what some I, point here's, during this show. Here's what I will say is the Brickarians come from Beta Cannon. They were created by Peter David. And <laughs> in the books, they are born with scales like rock talk. And then it's as they enter puberty, they slough off, you know, like a sort of a Cronenbergian sort of transformation. Sure. Uh-huh. So, you know, it could be worse, I guess is what I'm saying. Is the, is the sloughing off going to happen in season two? Can you tell us that? Hey, spoilers. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> is Murph's puberty not enough for you, Adam? Rock Talk wakes up in a pillow, just covered in her own teeth. <laughs> 
very special episode of Star Trek Prodigy. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but I, I, <laughs> but there is an example of um, as far as crossover goes, like like Okona, which you talked about before. Like we had Okona for that sort of like guest star role where he appeared in a, in a few episodes of our show, and uh, then Mike McMahon called and was like, "Hey, we you know we we're, we we want to use him as like a." for a visual gag where he's DJing a party and we were like, yeah, that totally fits in. Like mm-hmm. this guy, this yeah, guy never got rid of his wild hair ways, <laughs> <laughs> and, but that we were just like, just give him an eye patch. Um, or, and, well, we were trying to pitch, like have him lose an eye in your scene, but they were like, it's, it's just a three second sight gag, dude. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone from any of the series at a meeting like this brought up Kevin Uxbridge <laughs> like like on the whiteboard is it just Kevin Uxbridge question mark <laughs> I mean I think what I will say is there is always like somebody has their pet thing that they yeah. want to see again and we will entertain it we have like two boards in the writers room one is the bills to pay which is like the the the, the serious like okay if this is the character story we're telling or this is the plot story we're telling we have to see this 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 and this yeah and then the other side is the wish list and uh-huh. the wish list has a lot of stuff like kevin uxbridge question mark oh, i love it <laughs> i just want to know he's being talked about <laughs> yes that's great uh, that's beautiful <laughs> I could make you new teeth for Rectark. This could be a storyline. I could make the scale problem not happen at all. <laughs> the scales could fall from her eyes and everything else. <laughs> Thank you for humoring us. Sure. Uh, by <laughs> being our audience for impressions in the room. That's great. <laughs> I, that you can't see it because it's a podcast, but I am just staring stone-faced mm-hmm. at them as yeah. they do their <laughs> impressions. <laughs> What's your Star Trek origin story? Like, what did you grow up watching? Where have you, like, jumped in and out? Sure. Well, I mean, I I can't remember. I, maybe I told you this at Star Trek Las Vegas, but um, I don't um, remember anything from Star Trek Las <laughs> right. Vegas. Yeah, I, you were. I think maybe several tequila and sodas deep at that point. <laughs> hey, guy, come over here. <laughs> um, but my origin story for Star Trek uh, is I, I can't remember a time without it. You know, my it's the story that a lot of people have. It was my way of bonding with my dad. You know who um, he was a dentist, but uh, he he had I think he had a yearning for sort of creative and storytelling and that sort of thing. But when he was very young, he was told by I think a guitar teacher on his first lesson, "You will never play guitar." And then he just was like, "Well, I guess I'm not a creative person." Damn, <laughs> which I, you're uh, you're just not able to move your hands and fingers in a way that shows any dexterity i would recommend staying away from any field that involves uh, yeah. that kind of detail work <laughs> or needles yeah yeah definitely nothing involving those yeah scalpels but he had this this interesting aspect where he loved science fiction he you know he loved isaac asimov and he loved star trek and i want literally one of my earliest memories is sitting on the couch with my dad watching on the screen, the saucer separation as the sort of, you know, Jerry Goldsmith theme plays. And I remember seeing like the, 
the big energy grid that Q creates. And I re realized like years later that that was in fact us watching the premiere of TNG live wow. way back in September of 1987. <laughs> and then I just never stopped watching it. You know, whenever a new Star Trek movie would come out, we would watch together. And I know people have different opinions about insurrection, but to this day, I still enjoy that movie because I walked out of it with my dad hmm. and I was like, that was a, an awesome like hour and a half Star Trek episode with a, clearly a bigger budget. Dad, yeah. what did it mean when they were talking about their boobs getting firmer? <laughs> <laughs> that ship separating was, that was the closest a we ever formative had to moment. <laughs> yes. Like for anyone about our age, like that meant everything. No, it's true. That, and that's what I think Star Trek sometimes does best where it's like, on its surface, it's just like, okay, the metal thing is moving away from the other metal thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the way they present it makes it feel so important that you're yeah. like, well, I better pay attention and memorize everything that they say in these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that I think that maybe when, when new Star Trek kind of came back and disco was new, it seemed like maybe they were kind of forgetting to do that some of the time. And... More and more as the as new Star Trek has matured and, and new shows have come, like there there have been those moments of Star Trek grandeur that kind of call back to that. And I'm always a total sucker for it. I dude, anytime there is a, a an excessive sweeping around a ship, I will just lean in and smile. Yeah. Like I, I yeah. like make it ten minutes long. I don't care. <laughs> I, storytelling be damned. We need to score a lot of black fast. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. 
So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. It has been a long time coming that podshop.biz is as good as it is. The stuff on there is just really high quality and there's a ton of variety. We got t-shirts and sweatshirts, obviously, but we've got hats, we've got mugs, we've got water bottles, patches, mouse pads, shower shoes. There's so much great stuff on there. I'm really proud of what we have on offer. I'm proud that the store has a lot of really great size-inclusive options. And uh, I think there's enough variety that just about any friend of DeSoto could find something that they'd really love to have in their collection at podshop.biz. So head over there and give it a look. Why don't you? Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, there's a new ship. She's got the right name. She's got the right name. Now you remember that, you hear? So have you been, I mean, it's hard during COVID to know whether this would be true or not, but like the Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Awards type of event, uh-huh. like have you or would you be invited? And do you imagine you would get slimed? <laughs> I mean, to go there. That's kind of a funny story because when we first began the writer's room for Star Trek Prodigy, there was a discussion briefly of like, should we have this at, at like a CBS Radford lot where we have like cubicles mm-hmm. or do you want to be at, have it be at Nickelodeon Studios? And we were like, let's have the offices be at Nickelodeon Studios, dude. Yeah, yeah. And I think the first week we were there, we were outside, you know, brainstorming because it was a nice day. And then they just started setting up a giant slime vat in the courtyard. And <laughs> that's like, why you work at Nickelodeon. Yes. And then they slimed the interns in front of us. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. What do they make the slime out of? Are they like cutting open bags of like, <laughs> like agar or something? 
Well, yes, I think it it is in fact uh, just sent by a chemical facility from Dupont. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I actually don't know what it is made of. I do remember when I was at Nickelodeon Studios Florida, they had their own version of slime that I think was just made out of like coconut oil or something. But this one. I asked like the janitor who was tasked with wheeling these giant vats out. I was like, where'd those come from? They're like, I don't know. They were in the back somewhere. <laughs> in the slime room. And mm-hmm. yeah. And very clearly <laughs> they were just like jugs that had been mass manufactured at some point. Oh. And I think somebody found an expiration date after they'd been slimed. So oh, was there's like a shelf life prior. to slime. Yeah. It makes Sor- sense. Sorry, Doom Preppers. Me. I thought they would have shipped it to the HQ in like those tanker trucks that transport fuel and milk, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's more of a precious resource, really. I, it's, I can see it's that. crude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Raw slime crude. So that was actually another thing I was wondering, because I think it had Nickelodeon like in the logo of Prodigy. Yes. Does, it, does that persist now that uh, it's over on Netflix or? Well, yeah. Season two is produced by Nickelodeon Studios, and that's what we were making the show with for season two. So it, it will remain uh, on there over at Netflix you know, as far as future seasons go, I don't know, but yeah. uh, you know, it, it only seems appropriate. Did you grow up a Nick kid like I did? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was where the best cartoons were. Cartoon brag, Network. Brag, brag! You guys had cable. Cool. <laughs> you know, we didn't have cable all the time. We had some like chintzy, like <laughs> like kind of cable where I think we had the Disney Channel only for like one month out of the year yeah. when they were trying to get us to subscribe. And that those are like the glory days. <laughs> I, I was a grandma's house cable viewer myself. Yeah. Oh, man. I have memories of going down to Florida because like my family had like a little condo and the condo complex had full cable. And I remember that was truly astonishing and eye-opening yeah. though it's like i can just go to a channel that's all comedy <laughs> it's a network and it's centralized in one place yes. <laughs> and back then it was awesome because they would just play reruns of snl and kids in the hall and just like oh man every amazing stand-up special you can think of and it was very formative to my sense of humor yeah. like, oh that's how jokes work i i wouldn't be here if it weren't for that eight hour block every day in the summer <laughs> yes absolutely Totally. Yeah. Those are the days where like the way you got cable was like taking a filter off at the at the telephone pole, too. So (laughs) we got cable at one point because we moved to a new house that didn't get any like over the air. And so my parents got cable, but just for like the local channels Mm -hmm. and like while the guy from the cable company was out like up the pole setting it up, I was like, hey, man. Do you mind pulling that filter off so we get like the basic channels at least? And he's like, yeah, all right. Just don't tell anybody. Whoa. And so we had cable for a while and my parents didn't know. This is, I was probably like 13 when this <laughs> happened. And so at some point I told my dad like, so we do have other channels. Like the the guy took the, the filter off and my dad is such so a honest boy he scout. Ca- <laughs> he called the cable company up and set up a basic cable account because he didn't want to steal cable. <laughs> Well, I, I so imagine I'm, wanting to not steal from the cable company. <laughs> Would you steal a car then? <laughs> Outrageous. I mean, no, I was raised by my father. I would not I, steal a car. I would not steal cable. Up until this point, I have liked and respected your dad. <laughs> Both very much in question now. Wow. Dang. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Wendy, edit that out of Adam's memory of me saying it. (laughs) (laughs) How about no? Hey, we had a great Star Trek Las Vegas this year. I'm wondering how 
that goes for you when you are among the Star Trek fan community? Um, you know, for a long, people have asked me like, oh, so, you know, you were a huge Star Trek fan. Did you go to the conventions all the time? And the honest answer is no. I always, I never was sure if that was like my scene. Cause you know, I was like, I don't necessarily, I'm not. Cause you were cool. Well, no, I was, not, cool. I was not cool, but I was like, <laughs> I, I was sort of a, a, not introverted, but I was, I guess, ambiverted where like I was, I only liked to be performative in very specific circumstances and the idea of it's putting you on- you say that Ben was perverted. <laughs> yeah. I was a little of all, all three of those. Actually. All of the verted. Yeah. Right. But the idea of like putting on a costume and going to a convention and hang out with other strangers yeah. like mortified me as a child. It was just like, I don't, I wouldn't know what to say. I don't know what these people are. Like uh, the idea of giving someone something to make fun of you with was <laughs> terrifying. Sure. Well, now in that the nerds won, and that's yeah. like that's what's making all the networks billions of dollars. I'm yeah. like, time well spent, baby. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's it's funny though because I I think I went to one Star Wars celebration once with my friends because Indianapolis inexplicably was where the first two ever were held. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I got to meet Peter Mayhew and and the guy that played Yen Nub and wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Like as my friends were su super excited and like they got up to the autograph table and they're like, "Can you can you do the laugh?" And he and they was just like, "All right." And then he just got under the table and went stuck his hand up like a puppet and just went <laughs> and he was just like I was just the puppeteer I didn't actually do the voice <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> wow um, but that was the closest I ever got to it and then since I got involved with the Star Trek community I, I started like you know what I'm going to check these out because I love Star Trek and every Star Trek fan that I had met you know just through this had been awesome you know, what am I missing out on? I was a freaking idiot. They're awesome. They're so much fun. They're really great. It's like going on like a group vacation with everybody that you have something to talk to. For me, I always liken Star Trek and science fiction in general or fantasy nerd stuff, basically. It's like for some people, sports are the thing that you can go up to a perfect stranger at a bar and just say, so how about those cubbies? Mm -hmm. And then have like a solid 15 minute conversation and feel like a connection to them. For me, that was always like stuff like Star Trek yeah. and being in a, a, a world where that that's going on. And I have people coming up to me saying how much the stuff that I worked on meant to them is always deeply heartfelt and, yeah. and heartening to me. So, you know, it was awesome. I, I had a great time. And, you know, Star Trek Las Vegas this, this year was crazy because, you know, we, were, we had a panel for Prodigy and, and we were still right. trying to figure out where it landed. And then uh, CBS let us play a clip of, of season two and be able to see the audience sort of erupt slowly realizing that we were bringing the EMH, the doctor, back. Great and, pop. Yes. I'm sure you'll grow to love me just as much as you loved Hologram Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, hologram. It was really amazing, and it's kind of one of those memories that'll live with me forever. That's such a rare thing to get to experience for a television creator because most TV shows don't have huge convention communities yeah. surrounding them, so you don't often get to find yourself in a room full of people that are really excited about what you do for a living. Yeah, it's 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 us and Supernatural. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've been to a couple of like the premieres of a season, you know, season two of Lower Decks. I think we got to go to the premiere of, you got to go to the premiere of Discovery full stop. Yeah. 
And, you know, that like movie theater context of a TV show is so exciting and so different from how you usually consume these things. Did you get anything aside from the convention like that where you got to sit in the back of a dark room and watch an audience see it for the first time? Yeah, I mean, you get a little bit of that sometimes, like you'll do testing for projects you work on, and that's always a, a trip to to have an adult trying to speak very earnestly to a group of, of insane seven-year-olds. <laughs> I'm just like, so what did you like most, and what do you want to see more of? <laughs> And they're like, talks, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, oh, I'm working on a project. Like it tested super well. We have to make it grosser. <laughs> you get your focus group from like the local orthodontists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did your father's career in dentistry have anything to do with the design of that character? Oh, that is a hard hitting question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, my dad does love the show, though. That was, that was a nice seal of approval from a lifelong Star Trek fan. That's great. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. My parents are not in the industry per se, but they are deeply supportive, even though there was a long stretch where I don't know if they totally knew what I did for a living. <laughs> I think uh, my parents know exactly what that's like. <laughs> yeah, like my my dad is terrifically proud of me, but uh, I remember there was a long stretch when I first moved out here where on his website it said that uh, I was a film editor in Los Angeles, which has never been true. <laughs> <laughs> The greatest trick. Probably no quick way to summarize this, but what was your path to like becoming one of the main writers on a Star Trek series? Uh, a long and winding one filled with serendipity and me committing to things haphazardly in a way that shouldn't have worked. It's <laughs> the shortest answer I could say. You know, I, I kind of moved out here not really knowing anybody. You know, I knew a couple of people who I who had made like a very low budget indie movie that were from my alma mater. Um, and then I knew one person that I did sketch comedy with in college. And then I had my aunt and uncle who are not in the industry. And then my cousin who's a hairdresser. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and So you're a real Nepo baby. Right. <laughs> but I moved out here just to be like, well, I can't do anything else. Yeah. So I guess even if I have a 1% <laughs> chance of making it in Los Angeles, it's better than the 0% chance I would have living in Greenwood, Indiana. <laughs> so... I moved out here and, and just did a bunch of sketch comedy and, and whatnot, performed at Upright Citizens Brigade and the I.O. West Theater and did a bunch of short films and stuff and uploaded them to this newfangled thing called YouTube. And mm -hmm. very slowly, you know, people kind of took notice, you know, at least in the local comedy scene, you know, it's a pretty small world. And so, you know, I, I came up with a lot of folks uh, at UCB like – Nelson Franklin, who was on The Office and Veep and a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, he was in a student film that I was the art director of really? in, uh, at NYU. Yes, he's an NYU guy. Yeah. Uh, but he was he was in my UCB Improv 101 class. <laughs> yeah. I like, you know, I didn't really know him or anything. He's, I just he's like, very fun. Yeah. Like I, I, I thought he, he was great in the movie, but it was like it was just, just yeah. a little student film and I wasn't friends with him so i like didn't stay in touch because we didn't know each other yeah, yeah. and then i like started seeing him and shit and i was like that's that guy from that student film dude there you was... can be in a student film and have a career he just started appearing everywhere it, yeah. was, like, it was like an ongoing joke with him where i would like I would just go to the theater to say i love you man and then there'd be the nelson franklin <laughs> scene where he would just be there. oh there he is yeah i was starting to worry <laughs> um 
But, you know, so it was one of those things where everybody out here was in a kind of rising tides, raise all ships kind of scenario where we all were desperately broke, but just wanted to make stuff and make it with cool people. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of found my first job out here was at National Lampoon of all places, uh, which by a friend of mine who I had done sketch comedy with in college, somehow through some very, like they went to summer camp together kind of connection, got like essentially a minimum wage job there writing jokes. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I want to do that for a living. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. And Better so a minimum wage job writing jokes than a minimum wage job, like mopping floors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so we went, I went out there and very quickly I realized that they had all these sketches that they had filmed on what was back then called mini DV tapes that none of them had, had really edited or knew how to edit. But I had made all these short films and stuff. I was like, you know, I could I could take a crack at that if you want. And like, please do. And so I cut something together. And at this point, this is like 2006 or That's something. That's how it got on your dad's website. Yes. <laughs> I, I edited that digital film. <laughs> um, and they uploaded it to this newfangled thing called YouTube that had been around for like eight months at that point. And then it went viral. On wow. The, and then they, they said, wow, you just did that by yourself? And I was like, yep. And then they were like, can you do it again? And I did it. We uploaded another one. And then that one went viral. And then I basically went to them and said, like, look, you clearly need somebody here who knows how to make film. You're like, the first two are free <laughs> now that you're hooked. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And to their great credit, they carved out a space in the company for like an in-house sort of predator to help with that kind of stuff. And so I got to write and produce and, you know, all the agencies would send, you know, their their comedically inclined clients to come do weird short films for, for YouTube. Nice. Um, Did you slide a post-it across the table at them and it said like $15 an hour or something? <laughs> they all did it for free for exposure, if you could believe it. Wow. Do they remain on your reel? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they. so that was kind of like my start. And then I sort of segued into development and I, you know, in college I did documentaries for PBS at one point. So I helped develop some. I thought the civil TV. war was great, by the way. Thank yeah. you. I, <laughs> the documentary, I mean, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite wars. <laughs> that, that and the Spanish American. I mean, you, sure. you thought the war would have been better if the other side had won, right? That's oh, your, no. your opinion. Disagree, Ben. <laughs> You keep trying to project that. There's a, you know, there's a hard line in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but yeah, so I, I did, worked on documentaries for PBS, and so I got into docu-series a little bit. And probably the biggest thing I ever did during that time was I helped sell the reality show Real Housewives of Miami. Oh, no. So you're welcome, world. <laughs> wow. That's one of the few franchises that I'm not up to date on. Well. Um <laughs> So would you say between that and uh, Star Trek Prodigy, they've sort of canceled each other out? I, I, I think I like to think you've it's done maybe, in your life. I like, I like to think it's maybe a net positive at this point. I think <laughs> so too. It, it took some doing, um, but yeah. And then nights and weekends, I wrote screenplays and did performed comedy out here. And then eventually, I got a manager and an agent and sold some movies to a production company that did like the Stuart Little movies and that sort of thing. But I, I very clearly was like, oh, it seems like the closest thing I can get to a day job is in television. And yeah. uh, and then the first. TV show I, I wrote for that got made 
was uh, Troll Hunters. For it was made by Guillermo del Toro for Netflix, and that's the show that I met the Hagemans on. Wow! And that was going on a decade ago now. Performance was a big part of your comedy life for a while. What do you do to scratch that itch? Yeah, anymore? well, it's funny because I kind of hated it. <laughs> oh, I guess I, no I was, need. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like Michael Palin and, and Monty Python, who always kind of openly was like, I don't think I'm a good actor. I much prefer just to write and be behind the camera yeah. and help elevate my friends who I think are funnier than me. Like, I will gladly put on a song and dance if I have to. Uh, and it certainly helps when you're pitching projects and that sort of thing. And but, working with performers. Yeah. But, yeah. But I, I guess I'm one of those boring people that's like, I, I prefer the craft. <laughs> <laughs> you trod the board in your youth, but you've turned your attentions to. <laughs> yes. I am now something of a scribe. <laughs> uh, do the Hagemans hate us? Is that, I kind of got that vibe, what? maybe. No, they don't hate you. Okay. I good. think the, the Hagemans have a great sense of humor. They good, love you. good, good. They love you guys. When we walked up to them at a STLV, they were like, you guys are the ones that talk about Rock Talk's mouth all the time, right? <laughs> and Ben was like, no, no, that's not me. It's <laughs> mostly Adam. And I admitted that to their faces, that that was me. <laughs> and then we went on a run about Rock Talk's mouth that we won't bring up on the show, but they get it. No, I think they 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 have a great sense of humor about yeah. everything. Like, and you know, Kevin was also he was in Groundlings, so you know he's a he knows how to tell a, a little yuck him up from now and again. Nice. Uh, well, something you said a little bit earlier, as we as we wind this interview up, stuck in my mind, and maybe you can, maybe you can't say anything about this, but uh, the possibility seemed sort of open for more than just two seasons of Prodigy. Is that? Something that is on the table, at, at least? Yeah, I mean, Netflix has the license to the show. So I encourage everybody to watch season one now that it's dropped on Netflix and season two when it drops in 2024. And honestly, you know, the sky's the limit, as they say in a certain episode of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, I think we're in a very strange age of television streaming where the metrics of success and the longevity of shows is all kind of nebulous. But I think Star Trek has endured 57 plus years for a reason. And I think people are only just now discovering our show. And, you know, I think it could do extremely well at Netflix and uh, I've made uh, some really great television with great people there, and they, they're they very supportive of the show. And I know that the audiences that are yet to to discover it will, will love it too. So, you know, it, it, who knows? That's awesome. Well, um, you know, future seasons, I don't know where the show is headed. I don't know what kind of scenarios might unfold. But if any situation arises where a couple of characters need to get blown out into space through a hole in the hull or uh, <laughs> out an airlock, you know, keep our likenesses in the back of your mind. Oh, I, I've already copyrighted both of your likenesses. So okay, Wait, that's what those pictures are for when yeah. you stepped into the studio. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's kind of weird the way you just stuck the camera right in our <laughs> yeah. faces and, and just said, you consent, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you said, what means yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, he said that you heard that. question we always ask at the end of these things uh, and we've asked uh, a lot of Star Trek luminaries and you will ad be added to those wow. for the seasons of Prodigy that you've worked on who is the Edward Larkin? Who is the Edward Larkin? 
And just just for the viewers at home, because you don't refresh this very often, the yeah. Edward Larkin is just basically at this point it just means someone of note. Yeah. So <laughs> how, how dare you? <laughs> it seems like it does shimmy a little bit. It does. Yeah. It's it's arbitrary more than half the time I would say. But like the the essence of it is like Edward Larkin is this character who is genetically modifying tribbles, <laughs> right. uh, like who gives a shit what kind of problems it solves. He's the silly wackadoo. He's the human. Someone who brings a little bit of levity. Yeah. Acting in their own interest (laughs) alone, that kind of thing. Um, Well, in in terms of like the humor of it, I I won't say the diviner then, because he's a pretty serious character. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it funny how he's trying to prevent the the destruction of an entire planet? I mean, that was a hilarious reveal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Weird that you used a laugh track in that one moment. Right. (laughs) We fought for it. I mean- does Nickelodeon want more slime in the show? That could be a good opportunity, right? Um, I mean, that's what Murph's for, right? It is what like Murph's for. Murph was sort of these, this sort of... Uh, maybe Murph is the Edward Larkin of the whole show, because he's always kind of on his own wavelength and just kind of doing stuff. Sometimes firing photon torpedoes with his butt. Sometimes he's eating a chair. Yeah. Wow. That's a great answer. Who do you believe was the most nominated Edward Larkin for Prodigy on our show. I feel like Murph. Murph could have been, could, could have been, been ours yeah. too. Yeah. I, I know Barnes Frex took the cake. In oh yeah. A few, few episodes. Well, in, in your show, he was name? the Barnes Frex. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I, Barnes <laughs> Frex. Barnes Frex. Um, yeah. You got it. The award winning <laughs> Barnes Frex. Um, well, thank you so much, Aaron Waltke, for uh, for being here. Um, do you have anything else you want to plug aside from Prodigy airing on? Netflix? Well, I do have some really cool stuff in the pipeline, but uh, like all things in Hollywood, they are all NDA'd up the wazoo. So I can't really talk about them, but I will, I'll plug myself. And as soon as I can talk about them, you know, you can follow me. Uh, I'm Aaron Walkie or Aaron J. Waltkey is my nom de plume. And my, uh, my handle on all socials where the skies are blue or the tweets become X's are it's at good Aaron. Uh, G-O-O-D-A-A-R-O-N. And then uh, you can also follow the official Star Trek Prodigy Twitter account, which is, I believe, at Trek Prodigy Room. And then you can follow the Hagemans and the Bensons and just, you know, uh, find find the folks who work on Prodigy. We're all very approachable and we all love the show. We love to have a good laugh with friends. so fun uh, watching you interact with fans on (laughs) social media because you're always really generous and, and kind to them. We love um, your show. Thanks for uh, spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for making it. Thanks for making the trek over to the uh, the cargo bay or whatever we're calling it. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, thanks for all the support, and uh, you know, I can't wait to for you to host the watch party for season one when it drops. Now that it's dropped on yeah. Christmas, that's what I'm here for. Actually, we got to get a projector in here. <laughs> Put it up on the, on the big screen. That'd be great. Well, uh, we'll leave it here. And uh, next on our show, I think we've got Priority One messages. All right. Let's head over there. Whoa. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Okay, Adam. Time for some Priority One messages. Our first message today is of a personal nature. It comes from Drunk Shimoda. And it's to Ben, Adam, and all Discord FODs. Goes like this. Ben and Adam, thanks for the amazing London show. Please come back next year. Adam, in a post-show high, I sent a P1 to Greatest Gen, and on reading it, I see it sounds accidentally threatening. I haven't slept properly with anxiety since. 
Please take these scarves as an apology. Discord FODs, I love you all. You all rock. Peldor time zone to my best friends who live in my phone. Drunk Shimoda, don't worry about it. What is with people lately? (laughs) Just like all up in their heads about offending or accidentally threatening or whatever. Yeah. I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. I'm not thinking about anything. (laughs) Be free, drunk Shimoda. I had a friend make a comment about her outfit and I said it sort of had like the same color scheme as Velma from Scooby-Doo. Oh no, Ben. And then I was like up all night thinking about it. And I was like, Velma from Scooby-Doo is cool. Ben, it's the John Hodgman rule. Anytime you compare someone's dress to someone else's dress, make sure the dress you're comparing it to is known for being a good-looking dress. Don't you think Velma's known for being good-looking? I don't know. Not my type. (laughs) Should I have said Daphne? If I'd said Daphne, would it have been okay with you? Not my type either. Yeah. (laughs) You're you're more of a shaggy type. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me get shaggy. Zoinks! Well, anyways, Drunk Shimoda, uh, whether your anxiety was earned like mine or unearned like yours, uh, I hope you feel better after this P1. Yeah, that's stolen anxiety, Drunk Shimoda. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> ben, our second priority one message is from Evelyn G. It's to Ben and Adam. That message goes like this. Hi, guys. Given your strong opinions about Mark Twain, I invite you to check out the Calaveras County Frog Jump in my hometown of Angels Camp, California. It's where Twain wrote the story that made him famous, so they still hold a frog jumping contest annually. Will current champ Rosie the Riveter be unseated? The exciting conclusion next May. I think I'm going to miss that one. Sorry, Evelyn. <laughs> How far away is An- Angel's Camp, California? I'd go to that. I've never heard of Angel's Camp. It sounds like a cult city. Is that a cult city, Evelyn? I mean, California is uh, known for its cults. That's for sure. Let's see. Angel's Camp. Oh, it's uh, it's like outside Modesto. It's uh, it's up in up in the the foothills of the Sierras. East of like Sacramento and Stockton and Modesto. Oh, geez. That yeah. is a hike. That looks like five hours and 40 minutes from here <laughs> by car. My preferred method of travel. Not counting all the charging you have to do. Wow. Wow. Still possibly worth the trip. Yeah. Right back, Evelyn G. Let us know if there are a lot of people walking around twaining. If not, I would be curious about going. But if so, not going at all. Also, maybe there's a live stream of this. <laughs> maybe I can watch this from the comfort of my own home. That'd be nice. <laughs> that does sound good. <laughs> Is there like a Twitch uh, <laughs> with the frogs? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there is in a number of ways. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to get a P1 to assuage your guilt or mm. try to convince us to experience some twaining, it's MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron to set that up. I like the idea of being the FOD confession booth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unburden yourself, FODs. Yeah. And, and grow stronger from the unburdening. Mm. <laughs> okay, Adam. Last segment of the show. This is the, uh, the bit of every episode of Greatest Trek. Right before the credits where we, uh, where we drop a bomb on these people. A warning, <laughs> bois. 
a warning bomb? <laughs> Prepare a buoy and launch it when ready. Warning buoys. An emergency buoy. A warning buoy. We've been getting so many nice posts on social media. You know, we just had the 500th and 250th episodes of Greatest Gen and Greatest Trek, respectively. And the social medias have been going wild with uh, really nice posts about it. I want to share one uh, from TikTok, and maybe uh, Wendy can snip out a bit of this to play. These two guys love Star Trek, and they pour that love into an incredibly well-produced podcast. Carter Kelchik on TikTok did just like the sweetest, nicest post about how much he enjoys this fine program and how much uh, Greatest Gen specifically was a comfort during the early days of the pandemic. I really enjoy Carter's TikTok. Uh, I, I follow Carter on TikTok, mostly because of his political takes, which I find very edifying. He knows a ton about uh, history and stuff, but he also reviews like MM romance novels. So lots of fun butt stuff on Carter's TikTok as well. And uh, I was really genuinely verklempt when I watched this, this particular video about how much uh, the things we do mean to him. Hey, thanks a lot, Carter. If you've got a TikTok or a, a blue talk or mm -hmm. an X talk, mm. wh whatever talk you might be on, yeah, you might be able to turn that into a warning, bois. Put a post up on social media or leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, and uh, you might hear your words coming out of our mouths on a future episode of Grace Check. We really appreciate it. Help spread the word about the show. What a nice holiday break episode of Greatest Trek this was, Ben. Yeah. Rolling up to the end of the year now. We sure are. Pretty good moment to uh, share our thanks for Windy Pretty, primarily. Uh-huh. Producer uh -huh. of this show. Windy is the greatest, and uh, she is going to take it from here. Happy holidays, Windy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, FODs. See you on the flip side. Bye-bye. Greatest Trek is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's hosted by Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, and it's produced and edited by Wendy Pretty. Next week, Ben and Adam are bringing another bonus episode out from behind the paywall. This time, it's their 2019 review of the film, What We Left Behind. That's the DS9 retrospective documentary that you can stream online. Big thank you at the end of this year to all the Max Fund members who support on a monthly basis. Members get access to the entire catalog of Max Fund bonus content, plus the new bonus episodes coming out monthly. You can set up a membership at maximumfund.org/join, and we really appreciate it. Another great way to support is by leaving a five-star review or by recommending us to someone you know. Maybe send this episode to someone you know who loves Star Trek Prodigy. Thanks to Adam Ragusea, who composed all of the original music for this show. You can find his YouTube cooking channel and podcast by searching for Adam Ragusea. Thanks to Nick Dittmore for creating the show art, and thanks to Bill Tilly for managing all of the At Greatest Trek social media pages. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Greatest Trek. Yeah, let's... Uh... Hype it. Let's just really pimp the shit out of it. Yes. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.